This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.
it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce Barbara Herman to give the Dewey Lecture. Herman is Griffin Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Law at UCLA, and she's one of our country's leading moral philosophers, one of the two or three people, I would say, whose work really defines where the field is going. Throughout her career, and ever since her dissertation work with the great John Rawls, she's forged a distinctive Kantian approach to ethics, showing that Kant's ethics is actually much richer and thus vulnerable to a variety of objections than most philosophers had thought. Herman's first book, The Practice of Moral Judgment, is one of those books that I think gets richer and better every time I teach it, and I, I do teach it in courses ranging from graduate philosophy seminars to a course called Decision Making for a large, large group of law students. And she shows that a Kantian approach is perfectly able to accommodate a nuanced view of moral perception and moral salience, and also that this way of thinking about Kant helps us think about moral education, what it's supposed to accomplish, and why it often fails. So then Herman's second and more recent book, Moral Literacy, 2007, based on her Tanner lectures, continues this theme, offering a subtle account of the structure of our moral capacity, connecting this to issues of moral education, moral motivation, and moral responsibility. Herman has also produced a large number of very insightful and famous articles. So I'm just going to single out one, which I love. Could it be worth thinking about Kant on sex and marriage? Now that's a very strikingly funny title, really, because Kant is so far from being a feminist that you would think that there wouldn't be anything. It might be like an article that lasted two sentences. But actually, the, the humor, while it alludes to the fact that Kant, the person, was not at all a feminist, the article actually shows that Kant's own thought has a lot to offer to people concerned with gender equality, uh, Kant's ideas about what it is to respect humanity in a person, and to treat a person as an end rather than as a mere means, are actually closely related to feminist worries about the objectification of women and offer new resources for thinking about that whole cluster of issues. There's a wonderful part of it where she's going along and kind of quoting from Kant, and then there's a little paragraph that seems a little bit strange because it has some words that you think Kant might not have used, and you find out that that one is Andrea Dworkin, but it, it, it sort of slips in there. So, um, so, so Barbara, whose entire teaching career has been spent at UCLA, is famous also as a dedicated department citizen, sometimes chair, and an influential citizen of the university, as with her role in bringing the wonderful Mike Schill to be dean of the law school. And she's also a remarkable teacher. I found it pretty daunting. That's why I Googled her, and I was then led to her teaching evaluations, and I found them very daunting. And a completely representative one is this. One of the best in CAPS professors at UCLA. Even if you are not enrolled in her class, you should attend one of her lectures. Her lectures are captivating and intellectually stimulating. Also, she does a great job in explaining what each philosopher is trying to convey. On a personal note, I remember feeling the power of that captivating presence on the memorable occasion when I first heard Barbara Herman speak. 
and she probably doesn't remember this at all, but she was an older graduate student at Harvard, and she was famous among us younger graduate students as one of the, the best, but I never really met her or heard her give a talk. And on this occasion, she was addressing the whole faculty of the Harvard Philosophy Department about why the graduate students wanted to form a union. And I remember, I mean, this is a pretty daunting occasion with Van Klein and Nelson Goodman, all these people sitting there who were actually not very friendly to the idea of a graduate student union. But I remember the confidence, incisiveness, and great humor with which she faced down that group. And I remember thinking, this is a truly wise person, as well as one who's a lot of fun. So I think we're in for a treat in listening to her Dewey lecture today. It's hard to live up to these introductions. I won't try. <laughs> I think I have to just attach this to myself. Thank you for coming. Um, I don't know how much fun we're going to have, but maybe it'll be interesting. So this project started um, in the fall term this year when I taught a seminar with my colleague Shauna Schifrin on the topic of moral negligence. It's a, various, a very obvious topic once you think about it. Um, but if you, I tell you this and it's true, if you try to find a literature on it or even on its cognates, it's not there. Negligence as a wrong and as a subject matter is pretty much owned by the law and run by the Department of Torts. And it's not hard to guess how that came about. The law has the task of managing a large class of actions that harm persons and property, and interest in how that's going to be done has to be high. It's also no surprise that the philosophical issues posed by legal accounts of negligent acts have to do with causal connection, mental state, foreseeability, incompetence, and about the wrong, whether negligence involves a kind of trespass on rights or is a distributive failure. Remedy is its own world. I don't plan to join these debates, though I'll have something to say about them as we go on. My question is about what happens if we free the discussion of negligence from its home in torts? After all, the natural concept of negligence applies widely, certainly across law and morality. And if we shift the point of inquiry to non-negligence and the duty to exercise due care, things get interesting. Focusing on non-negligence with its ex-ante perspective, issues are less about balancing harm and remedy than about what we ought to do or what counts as acting well. Just that much is enough to raise a question about how or whether the moral and legal norms connect, and which, if either, is fundamental. My plan today, after some preliminaries, is to explore the moral side of non-negligence, looking at the duty of due care and its relations to other moral requirements. I will argue that it's an imperfect duty, one that requires partial articulation in law, and that its various applications in morality and law are continuous with each other, not the same, 
but engaged in the same moral work. The argument elicits and depends on the systematic interrelation of the two domains of law and morality. Now, looking from the outside, competing, as an outsider I mean, competing views of negligence in law differ about the aim of the legal regulation. Writing a wrong, or serving justice, or promoting fairness among cooperators, or, real, or realizing economic efficiencies. Each interpretive scheme has its preferred cases, individuals causing accidental harm to other individuals, corporations causing incidental harm as they go about their business, members of the professions failing to meet internal standards. Each scheme has its preferred mode of remedy or response that exhibits a different understanding of the social role of the law in incentivizing desirable behavior. Were one to want to export the idea of negligence from the legal context to the ordinary one, the most important lesson is the what's it for question. That would be the one that's paramount, and I think that's right. However, the focus on harm and remedy doesn't fit well with the idea of negligence and ordinary morality. In our ordinary relations, we don't seek the least cost avoider, we are not, in much of what we do, best understood as members of a fair cooperative scheme. And negligent failure is not always about harm, nor healed by making the victim whole. So before deciding whether the legal and moral ideas of non-negligence are or even could be congruent, we'll need an independent view of the moral side. So let me begin, as I like to do, with familiar things. When you and I interact, on the street, or in front of my room, or even over the internet, lots of things can happen. We pass and make room for one another, we exchange ideas or gifts, we make plans to meet, and we intend things to go a certain way. But we also bump into one another, fail to notice a salient change, make an offending remark, miss a meeting, without intending these outcomes. Suppose we could have done better. Of course, even if we take the care we could, and should take, failure happens. So it matters how things come about. Failure isn't proof of negligence. Success is consistent with it. Ordinary morality doesn't require harm or anything untoward to happen to find negligence. Getting it right is not quite a matter of more or less caution, or of moral luck, as if at any moment we might find ourselves stumbling into a Rube Goldberg or Chuck Jones constructed universe. It's true that the universe causally outstrips our ordinary vision of it, and knowing that we learn caution, but not too much caution, else we become paralyzed. As with many regions of activity where the right amount is for good reason underspecified, a responsible agent acquires the habits of caution suited to the range of activities she engages in alone and with others. How we hand one another tools, or put out a grease fire, or maintain the brakes on our car. We monitor what we say to whom, try not to drive when we're sleepy. We also knowingly play games where someone is likely to get hurt, and engage in productive activities whose footprint will not be light. And sometimes we throw caution to the wind. We could say that ordinary negligence lies in failure to direct the right kind of attention to our acting, making non-negligence an appropriate attitude of intention and care. 
The non-negligent agent takes a critical view of herself as an agent, recognizing that the horizon of her intention is not the boundary of her agency. It's more than a bit challenging to work out what this requires of us. Being careful is no guarantee. There are hazards that we can't anticipate. Others' actions may alter the circumstances in ways that defeat our caution. It's often hard to give an account of why we take what we're doing to be good and sufficient. Curiously, while it may be hard to say what caution or due care involve, it seems easier to identify carelessness, perhaps because the examples are so awfully familiar. The right turn made without looking, loudly voicing a criticism without attending to who can hear it, closing a valve or a latch but not all the way, relying on memory rather than writing down a complex schedule. These acts all seem to involve taking for granted something that shouldn't be. We don't, in acting carelessly, disregard everything, and due care is not acting with attention to everything, but to those areas where absence or misdirection of attention is a fault. One could be attending very carefully to the identity of the birds and the branches while making that right turn. When we say to someone, pay attention, we assume that it's obvious where attention isn't being directed, that the target of our vocalization already knows where the spot is in what she's doing that might warrant the warning. It's as if we are primed for failure to take due care. Suppose one makes a promise to A to do X, where X is complicated enough to require some planning to execute. How do we understand what's required of us? Do we have, in addition to a duty to do X, a separate duty to plan and execute? Or are planning and executing already involved in the duty to do what you promised? I promise to bring bread. I forget the bakery closes at 6 and arrive at 6.30, but it turns out the bakery has changed its hours and is open until 7. I bring the bread as promised. I also acted negligently. Have I succeeded in one thing and failed in another? One can't succeed negligently, only despite one's negligence. Had I forgotten the promise and brought the bread for some other reason, we would not say I kept my promise. Examples suggest that if there is a second duty around, it isn't an independent duty alongside the promissory duty, but a secondary or maybe executive duty, dependent for its content on the primary duty of the promise, of promising generally, and of this promise in these circumstances. We might then reasonably, if a little quickly, conjecture that there isn't an independent duty of due care as such, but rather, where there is a primary duty or obligation, there is space for a secondary duty of due care. That would explain why the duty points to the idea of a standard, but doesn't provide one. Failure in its sphere means that something that required attention because one had a specific duty was not managed effectively. This is what divides negligence from pure accident. The duty of due care is to be distinguished from the requirement to take necessary means. Having a duty to repay 
I must gather and then convey funds in a timely manner. But servicing a debt or the debt isn't all that's required. I should not, for the pleasure of it, act in ways that lead you to doubt, you, the person I owe it to, lead you to doubt that I will repay. If I have a duty to be truthful about something, I should try to make the truth accessible, not deliver medical advice in a rebus or in an overly technical manner. A duty to aid should be carried out in a way that doesn't cause collateral damage. None of these are instrumental requirements, though failing to get them right can defeat the dutiful performance. Might we explain the moral data in terms of additional independent duties? A duty to help and a duty not to cause damage. A duty to speak truthfully and a duty not to obfuscate. A duty to pay debts and a duty to appear to intend to pay one's debts. There are, of course, circumstances in which one has and must act on multiple independent duties. But in the cases that hand, the second duty somehow belongs to the first. We do not have straight-up duties to be transparent or not to obfuscate or to act without incurring costs. We also have no standing duty to remember. We have a duty to remember or to take steps so that we remember when forgetting is a foreseeable impediment to to fulfilling another duty. We have a duty not to obfuscate when lack of clarity undermines the point of the truthful communication, and so on. When our not taking steps to remember or not making the effort to speak clearly incapacitates us with respect to the primary duties we have, it makes sense to describe these situations as failures to take due care. But really, why isn't not taking steps to remember simply a rational failure to take necessary means? Well, consider how things might go. I say, see you for lunch tomorrow at noon. And that's the end of it. At noon the next day, there I am. No memory-inducing steps were taken. Maybe I'm just good at remembering social arrangements but have trouble remembering names. Well, that changes things. If knowing your name on another occasion will be important for me or show lack of respect for you if I fail, I should take steps to remember. It's true that on the rare occasion I may forget an appointment, I'm surprised and disappointed, but there was nothing I failed to do as a means. I just forgot. But if in the swirl of the social moment I didn't take steps to remember a name and I later don't recall it, the failure is more a fault than an instrumental error. So, where we can't fully count on our abilities or where we know that the stakes are high, we may need to take steps. It's on us to know both when this is the case and how much additional care it is reasonable for us to take on. When it is a failure of judgment or a misstep in execution and not of a rational requirement, the failure counts against due care. There's still more. Suppose that you do not fail in doing what your duty to repay requires, but the manner of conveyance introduces difficulties. You repay the debt with a check, but after the banks have closed, and I needed use of the funds today. We know each other well enough so that you knew that. If it was easy, or easy enough, for you to have avoided the difficulty, then you should have. While I have no claim on you to do that based on the duty to repay, 
There surely seems to be a failure of due care here, but if so, with respect to what? Well, plausibly, the standing duty you have to be mindful of a friend's welfare. So, not a conflict of duties. It was possible to attend to both and with the same action. And although there's only one claim on you, were you able to attend only to the debt, you would not violate a welfare duty. There is some kind of requirement that, in the servicing of the debt, you not do less than you easily could to avoid serious inconvenience to your friend. If you do less than you could, it's a failure of due care, I would say, in the exercise of one duty with respect to another. All right, so let me quickly take stock. The rational requirement to take adequate means is not itself a moral requirement. It inherits moral significance from a moral aim. Due care, by contrast, is a moral requirement, a secondary duty whose application and content depends on independent or primary duties. It requires that we attend to foreseeable sources of failure and that we take responsibility for the intersections with other, not necessarily conflicting, duties. The duty of due care calls for no specific action or action kind. It isn't owed to anyone. It's a task for the agent to determine when due care requires doing anything. There is no single standard of due care. And not everyone faces the same demands of due care in similar circumstances. Now, the duty's indeterminateness and dependence on judgment suggest, in moral theory, an imperfect duty a duty of ends that leaves agents room for choice in how and when they execute it. Other features suggest it's not an imperfect duty. Unlike, paramount, param, sorry, unlike paradigm imperfect duties, it's ubiquitous, often demanding. The importance of due, scare, due, due care in the moral scheme of things is higher than many perfect duties. Well, you might think, so what? It only matters if we need the idea of an imperfect duty to make sense of the duty of due care, and I think we do. So let's go there. Now, imperfect duties are introduced in moral theory because they seem to solve problems that arise with duties like beneficence. We have a duty to promote the good of others, but morality can't acceptably task us to promote the good of every needy other we might help nor can we be called on to routinely pass over benefits to our near and dear for the sake of greater benefits to distant strangers. On the standard account of beneficence as an imperfect duty, we're required to adopt the end of helping others, but like other ends or aims we have, we needn't always act for it when we could. But it's a terrible solution. There's no gain in calling something a morally required end if we're free to choose not to act on it. Surely, if there's good reason to make space for richer lives for ourselves and our intimates, we shouldn't get there by way of bare choice or personal preference. The standard account of an imperfect duty gets it right that there are duties to adopt ends. It goes wrong in what it takes to follow about choice. As we'll see, bare choice is not the only option. It's worth noting as we go by that perfect duties don't fare so well on the standard account either. Their value is said to be in their strictness, well-suited to moral regions that call for protection, duties about our bodies, our property, our trust. 
But if, as on the standard account, these are exceptionless requirements on action, their value is undermined by the fact that any perfect duty one can name is vulnerable to overriding by almost any other duty on some scenario. And lots of journal articles have shown this. The duty of due care poses a challenge to the standard account because it is a duty with a set of unusual features. Its requirements are indeterminate and variable, yet its contexts of application are ubiquitous. Due care is engaged because something else is at stake. Avoiding harm, to be sure, but also such things as ensuring equal treatment or meeting need or respect. We don't fail due care whenever we fail at a primary duty. There are lots of ways to go wrong. We fail due care if we will let the obligation slip out of active memory or ignore something about the duty that calls for attention. Its requirement of concernful attention is aimed at our motives, not just at our actions. It directs us to organize agential resources around our duties. To do this, we have to grasp and attend to what a duty is about, making its point and purpose guiding for attitude as well as action. We are to be oriented not just to what a duty requires, but to what makes it matter. So, for example, if the point of the institution of promising is to secure cooperation without depending on altruism, due care will focus attention on issues of defection. But if the point of the institution of promise is to enable us to give another person limited authority over what we do, due care will be more about trust. Similarly, if the point of the duty not to injure is to protect a physical resource, Due care may be satisfied if we can provide an equivalent. But if its point is to respect the integrity of the person, that won't do. So it is this trifecta, attention, motive, the purpose of a duty, that I think a credible idea of an imperfect duty can make sense of. What we're aiming for is an account of the duty of due care as an imperfect duty that shows it not to be some kind of add-on to deal with a particular class of harms, but integral to an account of what it is to fully satisfy a duty. Okay. Now, it should be obvious, though I know it's not, that any account of our duties has to answer that original what's-it-for question. Getting the answer is easy for the consequentialisms. But their kind of answer, where duties are about outcomes and nudges are as good as motives, makes it hard to capture the features of due care we've canvassed. And if we look for it, we actually can find a different and more congenial answer to the what's it for question from autonomy or rational agency-centered views, ones that I prefer. For them, the point of our duties and permissions is to create a habitat for free, equal, self-directing persons to develop and express their rational natures. Duties are deliberative and orienting in their requirement, not just productive. They set terms of standing between persons. They treat action as a mode of address as well as an efficient cause. Agency-centered views give priority to first personal judgment. It can matter to the rightness or wrongness of an action how the agent reasons to it, or what her motives are. It's a natural setting for imperfect duties, and so of due care. 
To see this, I want to set out some of the major, major pieces of an agency-centered view. And the version I'll use is roughly Kant's. As befits the ecological metaphor of a habitat, the duties of an agency-centered view are interdependent and morality is holistic. A duty considered separately from other duties is deliberatively incomplete. What to do if I break a promise or trespass on a right or someone's dignity depends on the significance of what I've done, and that depends on how what I did perturbs other elements of the habitat. A duty also has no unique practical valence of importance or stringency. It is sensitive to goings-on elsewhere in the system. Now, the anchor of such a view, and in fact of Kant's substantive theory, involves something like a basic structure or a theory of public right. It provides a framework of fundamental moral kinds, a first ordering that sets moral terms for public institutions and law. Its task is to secure the equal status of persons, sanction basic protections, and provide the moral authority for legal institutions of property, contract, and like. In Kant's version, the source value of the basic structure is the innate right of persons to be free from four things, free from others' private authority, from differential status and class, from moral taint, and free from constraint on expressing one's mind. Just those four. They are not moral or legal entitlements, but categories or value premises from which valid entitlements can be derived. For example, public right anchors a set of legal duties that have to do with injury to the body. It tells us what counts as assault and battery and what is incidental contact. A public right not to suffer assault on one's life or body is a necessary protection of the independence and integrity of the person from the private authority of others. This is a part of morality that has to have juridical form since it licenses public coercion. The values to be protected cannot be at the mercy of the moral goodness of other persons since what is to be protected is the condition of other practical goods, including that of effective moral agency. Stepping down. Next, public right and legal duties shape the duties of the moral person. Ideally, once there is public right, once the value of independence is articulated in law, the related duties of moral persons are given some deliberative shape. There is continuity from what the state has a right to do to the individual's morally available reasons. So consider assault and the morality of self-defense. The state can prevent assault without itself engaging in it, even if it uses force as a means. And that's so because its entitlement to protect determines the moral status of its actions. The same reasoning applies to individuals. If the wrongfulness of physical assault is about culpable disregard for the independence of the victim's agency, justified self-defense isn't assault 
directed back at the aggressor. It's a different kind of action. It's not simply a means to furthering a private purpose. The difference is in the motive or end. Justified self-defense, like the state's action, aims to restore the moral condition of rightful independence that is the point of public right. One can hear this in the, you have no right, directed at the aggressor, which you might want to compare with, don't hurt me, which is a very different thing. While the law can ignore motive and let a private interest self-defender be its ad hoc deputy, morally, the difference remains. Perfect duties, we saw them a moment ago, Perfect duties are the private side of public right. They continue the work of public right, protecting fundamental value by limiting what we may do for the sake of our own purpose or purposes. It's just the idea of deontology. That is, perfect duties rule out reasoning from considerations of self-interest to such actions as lying, killing, breaking promises, and so forth. They are not exceptionless prohibitions on action types. What is exceptionlessly prohibited are deliberative schema. So there is no perfect duty not to cause physical injury or other harm. There is a perfect duty not to unilaterally initiate injury or harm as a means to a private purpose. This sets a default requirement. But as with self-defense, in morally abnormal circumstances, where adhering to the default requirement would undermine its own supporting value, an agent can have reason based in that value to set the default requirement aside. We find the same pattern with the perfect duties connected with lying, deception, and truthfulness. Anchoring these duties for Kant is an innate right to speak one's mind. Its first role is in public right, and it's essentially the right that we have to be free to speak to power. If we could say only what someone else thinks or permits us to say, or if what we can say is regulated by its expected effect, then we cannot represent our ideas to others and our public speech would carry no authority. Private morality takes up the same rationale for the innate right in a general presumption of truthfulness in speech. It's only if I speak my mind that we can reason together, and perfect ethical duties of communicative integrity, that I not regard myself or cause myself to be regarded as a mere speaking machine, uttering words that look like communicative speech, but are sent out simply for their effect. If duties of communication are perfect, truthfulness trumps private interest because false communication is corrosive to rational endeavor. Imagine one's partner in a scientific inquiry bringing false data to the project. Even if its effect is benign, once the false data is there, the project is a failure. False avowals of love undermine the relationship they misrepresent. However, if by eliciting your honest speech I would make you complicit in wrongdoing, think the murderer at the door, you may lie. In such a case, the value of truthfulness is not realized by adhering to the default terms of the perfect duty. Okay, now imperfect duties. 
In a Kantian scheme, public right and perfect duties don't exhaust the role of fundamental value in setting directives. Where morality is taken to be primarily for, in those theories, where morality is taken to be primarily for protection and coordination, most of its work can be done by carefully crafted public rights and perfect duties. But if we're talking about a habitat for rational persons, something we make together, there will be specific kinds of ends we need to have. Think about the familiar list of imperfect duties, if they're familiar to you. Preventing the violation of other duties. Concern to prevent harm generally. Benefiting others. Preventing violation of other duties. Concern to prevent harm generally. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. Um, Self-promotion, self-perfection, and the duty of due care. Each represents a goal well-suited to the moral habitat project. We add resources to making the habitat safe. We provide one another support and cooperation. We take ourselves on as a moral project. We add care to our lawfulness. This gives us the first piece of an account of imperfect duties. They are duties that give us ends, but not ends articulated in terms of an object to be promoted as we choose. The ends connect our motives to the moral value underlying the common project. So let's go back to beneficence and its problems. The first question we now ask is, what's it for? What good does it promote? Even if beneficence directs us to feed starving children, there's more than one way to understand why we're to do that. We can, sem- sen- we can sensibly ask, what beyond the alleviation of suffering are we aiming to accomplish? Why food and not anesthesia? We provide food because while we care about suffering, we're aiming to preserve life and promote the human good. Which good? Well, on the autonomy account, the good is rational well-being. Then, indeed, we should feed the hungry. But on the very same grounds, we should meet needs for education and sustainable community and a whole host of things. So for whom? The second question is thus about deliberative import. Even if there were no problems of global poverty, suppose just institutions have done their work. Given the way human life goes, there will always be need for goods and services beyond what individuals are able to provide for themselves and beyond what social institutions can or ought to provide. Morality then taxes us to help one another. We naturally ask, will that tax leave us enough for ourselves and our relations? Well, that's one picture. Here's a different picture. When you're engaged in a cooperative endeavor, some of the needs of others are your needs too. Suppose beneficence were like that. Morality wouldn't then tax you in a way you'd be moved to resist. We now ask instead, Whose needs are our needs? Move to the head of the list are our family members, friends, colleagues, and co-workers, neighbors, and so on. Beneficence would then follow on attachment and not threaten it. As such, it could be and is very demanding, and it's that way without our raising a moral eyebrow. 
A sick child or a parent, a friend in crisis, can introduce almost limitless demands that we don't resist. Demandingness is not the problem. Tending to a sick child or parent can change your life, but it doesn't make it less your life, even if it sometimes feels that way. We can lose our grip on the narrative arc of our lives under the pressures of full-blown stranger beneficence. So what decides which account of beneficence we should adopt? What beneficence calls on us to provide for others is time and effort and stuff. What we give matters to us. It also has a place in the moral scheme of things. The part of what we give that raises the problem for beneficence is not our hand on a fevered brow, but our property, stuff, that is both protected and interpreted by the moral basic structure. So, if what property is for is private accumulation of wealth, beneficence is a moral tax. But if it's for the provision of the material conditions for society of free and equal moral persons, then it isn't. As part of our common moral endeavor, if we may help differentially, it must be because we, in that way, realize a goal of the moral system. We can then argue that it matters to children that their parents or their intimate circle act on their behalf. Providing help is part of building a relationship of trust that support and support that enables a child's healthy development. It's not just that I may help my child and not yours. Stranger help can sometimes be intrusive. My child trips. I reach out. But you, a swifter helper, dash in. If there's no real danger, that the help might get there some seconds earlier is not usually a good reason for a stranger to intervene. There's a lot the parent might be doing in helping, providing support, giving instruction. A parent might choose not to help as the best response, seeing the episode as a teaching moment. Across the board, we communicate and create through our helping. It's one of the ways we say how we value each other, how we confirm and build relationships. Among the existence conditions of friendship, is that friends be able to help one another. Sometimes, against one's preference, one may need to help a friend or let oneself be helped by a friend. Even in easy rescue cases, we express something. That someone must help, and because I was first on the scene, it's me, nothing more. But in order to express the values that belong to beneficence, the collective, we need discretion over who, how, and when to help, and space to be sensitive in our beneficent actions to other moral concerns that overlap. It is this sort of expressive discretion, not bare choice, that imperfect duties enable. All right. So does the articulated duty of due care call for an imperfect duties expressive discretion? Well, consider how things go with a simple element of the subsystem of property. Having borrowed something from you, say a book, I have a perfect duty to return it and an imperfect duty to care for it while it's in my possession. The designations mark different deliberative requirements. 
One signals that I cannot keep the borrowed thing just because I'd like to. My preferences don't create a transfer of possession. The other signals that I must attend to how the borrowed thing fares while I have it. I shouldn't leave it out in the rain if that will ruin it or dog-ear the pages, though I also needn't devote myself to its care. In the typical case, I exercise judgment about what's normal wear and tear, how much trouble maintaining it is worth, what the lender's reasonable expectations are with respect to the object and with respect to me. Part of the exercise of judgment is to be open to special features of our circumstances. So knowing that you are fastidious about your library, I might take special care always to carry the borrowed book in a plastic sleeve. I wouldn't be in the wrong if I didn't take extra care. There were no terms like that in the lending. But if we are friends, out of respect or affection for you, I should take the extra care, unless perhaps your fastidiousness has become a problem. Either way, the moral demands that come with friendship further inflect the exercise of due care with respect to the primary duty of hanging on to your book and getting it back to you. And they do this through the motive I have from the duty's end of concernful attention to the primary property duty and the moral contingencies that occur in its environment. So this is the antithesis of bare choice. Now, if, as I claim, the duty of due care is a secondary and imperfect duty requiring that we organize attentional and practical resources to meet potential impediments to our success with primary duties, there is a place for the duty at every part of the moral system. It attends public right, perfect, and other imperfect duties. Despite the great differences in kinds of actions required and kinds of agents responsible for due care, from institutions like courts and legislatures to corporations and private persons, it is, importantly, the same duty throughout. Unlike some other views where private morality and law are mainly connected through mutual constraint, the Kantian view regards them as integrated the forms of moral reasoning continuous across the elements. A big system, not a big tent. Different parts have different foci and structural features, but as parts, they belong to a system that completes them. And the duty of due care is integral to the way the entire system works. Now, in support and defense of this very large claim, I want to look briefly at four issues about motive, system, the division of moral labor, and about the moral force of non-negligence. Now we've seen that whether the actor is public or private, because the duty of non-negligence or due care is directed at primary duties, non-negligent action depends on engagement with what the primary duty is for, its underlying value. The duty calls for the agent to orient attention and response to that value. It is therefore a demand on motive first, not success in outcome. We cannot act non-negligently from just any motive. We must be attentive to what matters, not just acting as we would if we were attentive. 
Some might argue that talk of motives is ruled out for many of the purported bearers of this duty because they lack a psychology. That's a mistake. You don't need a psychology to have a motive in the relevant moral sense. A basic structure that adheres to Rawls's two principles in lexical order has a motive in that its activity is oriented by and responsive to values of equality and fairness. Strict scrutiny is a structural expression of a motive that tracks the value of some due process protections. If an institution is insufficiently or inaptly attentive to considerations that bear on its primary duties, if, for example, its procedures are closed to relevant information, that is a fault in institutional motive that can result in negligent actions. Here's a legal example. The Clark's finding in 1950 about social disadvantage and segregation challenged the idea that the formal equality of separate but equal met constitutional standards for equal protection. Though not discussed in these terms, the argument to attend to that material was about due care. If the court accepted the Clark's empirical finding and was motivated, as it institutionally had to be, by the value of equal protection, it had to take steps that would alter existing educational arrangements in the direction of the underlying value. The assignment of that motivation to the court as such seems to me uncontroversial. Had the court refused to consider the Clark's findings, it would arguably have been negligent, or worse, because badly motivated. The evidence for this would have been the court's formal arguments, not the motives of any of the justices. Second, the duty of non-negligence or due care functions in a dynamic system of duties. It not only has application wherever there are primary duties, it can call for changes in the primary duties we have. For example, in conditions where we're faced with an amount of stranger need that private beneficence can't or shouldn't manage, due care might require that social and legal structures organize a public scheme of beneficence. Moving a primary duty from one sphere to another can diminish the likelihood of direct or negligent failure. It need not provide exactly the help that would be provided if each of us separately managed our own stranger beneficence. We're going to forego some discretion. And it need not draw from us exactly the amount we would separately provide, in some cases more, in some cases less. Also, in making beneficence even partly a public duty, new requirements of due care arise democratic and fairness values engage. A wealthy but unequal society could wind up doing too much elsewhere if that results in the neglect of some of its own citizens. The inherent dynamism of the system of duties serves due care in both directions. If stresses on private duties can be sometimes resolved through legislated changes in public duties, Public duties can also alter what our private duties require of us. So, for example, 
what counts as sexually inappropriate or disrespectful behavior in private relations is now partly shaped by public regulatory rules for the workplace. It's not so much that restrictions in the one sphere directly move over into the other, but that heightened sensitivity to issues in one set of relations puts us on notice of due care in the other. The division of moral labor can also be straightforward. Think of the way we manage licensing adolescent drivers, to take a very different sort of examples, and the way example, and the way we divide due care between state and family. Connecticut, I found out, allows a driving permit at 16, but only if a legal guardian says that the teen is ready to drive. Nothing like that in California. California, on the other hand, forbids teens driving teens for the first year of their license, except in the presence of an adult. Each party in the division of labor aims to minimize risk while expressing respect for the soon-to-be adult. So there are typically curfews, no unsupervised driving between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m., but also exemptions, for example, for work or medical necessity or driving a sibling. Violations of due care typically involve failure to take on the full practical burden of a primary duty. There's a failure to grasp or control for what some moral requirement turns out to involve in real conditions. It can involve a constellation of things, not all contemporaneous with a duties action directive, taking preparatory steps, having adequate practice and experience, skills of self-management and self-knowledge, of sustained critical attention, and so on. Looking at such a list, It's obvious that the demands of non-negligence will differ in systematic ways as we go down the line of duties. And since failures of due care can occur at every level of the system of duties, we should also expect there to be different kinds of response, depending on where in the system the failure occurs and what kinds of moral costs are involved. At the very highest level of the moral system, where the questions are about whether fundamental values are effectively captured in basic institutions and laws, the demands of due care are very high, both prospectively and reactively. Failure here can't be balanced with benefits from elsewhere in the system. That remedy may be costly can sometimes seem to justify a less-than-best response. Think about mandatory busing once upon a time or Obamacare now. The risk, from the point of view of due care, is that pragmatic concessions to failures make it difficult to sustain integrity of purpose. The lens of due care highlights failures in a distinctive way, I think. Take some, just some, of the many things that can be said in criticism of U.S. prisons, given the conditions of incarceration, the recidivism rate, the racial makeup of inmates. Cruel, inefficient, unjust, seem fair enough. But also negligent, which is more than just an additional complaint to the cruel, inefficient, and unjust. If the value that anchors the moral system 
were the rational well-functioning of persons, and therefore is the value that supports and partly justifies its subsystems. Our prison system is negligent with respect to this value to a degree that undermines its moral authority to incarcerate. Morally, one can live with inefficiencies, even some injustice, but we can't live with loss of authority if what we're doing is imposing our will on others. That the current system makes us safer, if it does, is not a counterbalancing consideration at this level of due care. Further down the system, we will, of course, find matters of harm and negligence and legal remedy in the more familiar ways. Proactively, measures of due care mitigate the occurrence of harms and other untoward outcomes. Failures of due care, including negligent actions, involve falling below a reasonable standard. At the limit are activities that threaten grave harm that no regime of care can manage, and they should not be permitted. The indeterminateness of an imperfect duties requirement is consistent with there being a moral boundary, a level beneath which we may not go. Where realized harms are compensable, yet could also be mitigated by taking further steps, we enter the space of judgment and discretion. From the perspective of moral non-negligence, the debates about negligence in law, is it or should it be a regime of fault or efficiency or strict liability, look not so much like debates as reflections of different loci of due care. Proponents of each view, as I've mentioned, tend to have their favored cases, depending on where they think the heart of negligence, legal negligence, lies. If it's trespass on rights, their examples will be about risky fires and docking barges. If it's about compensation, they'll talk about automobile accidents and medical malpractice. If it's about social justice or efficient risk distribution, it's about predictable threats to well-being from productive activities of manufacture and delivery. The availability of insurance makes some of this debate moot, but I think the distinctions the legal discussions are onto are real. The questions posed are what we would expect thinking about moral non-negligence. At what point are actors or victims, sorry, where must one take steps? Where is there reason to weigh the burden of precaution and compensation? At what point are actors or victims on their own? But note that such questions, while familiar to the legal discussion, are hardly unique to the law of negligence. They belong squarely within the duty of due care in its most familiar places. When we follow the duty across its domain of application, the pattern of management exhibits the same structure found in the legal negligence debates. Consider three cases in the more personal part of the moral system. So first, if the object of my due care is your life or security, then I must take steps, even if they're costly. I'm not responsible for what I could not reasonably prevent, but the standard of due care is high and is insensitive to the particulars of my condition. 
That burden, if it's too high, can be relieved by a division of labor. If we move down, suppose I've promised to meet you for a movie. Given that I have a late-running meeting, due care warrants setting a reminder. But if in the press of business I forget and then don't show up, I owe you something. Though, if the meeting was vital to my interests, and you know that, perhaps you should share the burden and be understanding. On the other hand, if I take your nice new bike off-road, Whatever happens when I'm out there off-road is on me, even things that, in the moment, could not have been prevented. Now, what follows if there is, as I think there is, common form across all the cases, from the highest cases in the law to the lowest cases in bike riding? One thing is that it might be a mistake to try to resolve the disputes in legal theory about the kind of problem negligence involves. In light of the complex structure of the underlying moral duty of non-negligence, each of the competing accounts can instead be seen as suited to a distinct part of the moral system. From my point of view, that's a happy result. I have an inquiry that starts in a debate about negligence law that prompts an amplification of moral theory. The new focus in moral theory on non-negligence reveals important continuities between moral and legal duties and sheds light on the initial debate in law. If morality is the kind of system I think it is, including the law as a proper part, this is just what we should expect. Thank you very much. That was great. So now we have um, about a half hour for questions and discussion. And I'll call on people. But afterwards, stick around because there's a reception outside in the corridor where you can talk to Barbara Warren informally. programmatic question, and I know I'm not going to change your mind, but (laughs) as a consequentialist, I naturally feel that consequentialists can explain a lot of what you want to explain just more simply. So consequentialists want to promote a certain kind of character because of the consequences that people having that kind of character will result in. So we want to promote you know, the level of care which is necessary and sufficient for avoiding more or less expectable harm. So, you know, when I'm driving, I want to pay enough attention that I don't turn the wrong way down the one-way street. But I am not expected to check under my car and make sure there's not an unconscious person under there. Because that's not very likely, unless I'm in a place where that happens a lot, next to a fraternity or something. But typically... We, we cultivate you know, dispositions insofar as they need to be cultivated to achieve a particular effect. And even the difference between perfect and imperfect duties, 
and won't go on, but you know, I think can be explained in terms of you know, what we're trying to achieve and the best ways to achieve it. So that's really a, a remark. So a two-pronged two an, two answer. Um, one is I think it's hard, harder, you'll see why I'm going to emphasize harder, not impossible, harder for consequentialists to absorb the range of values. Um, they can. I mean, you can be a consequentialist over any kind of value, and you can be a qualified hierarchical structure. There's lots of things that consequentialists do. But I think it's not as natural um, to look at the range of values. The second, and I think, um, for me, uh, deeper worry is that I think consequentialism is a form of, I'm sure I'm not going to say this without stumbling, Ptolemaicism. Ptolemy. Um, so there's a feature of, of moral theory and of theory generally, that theories can mimic each other. Um, so one of the ways in which, for example, Kantian moral theory advances is by peeking over at Aristotle. What do they do over there that we're having trouble doing? Can we do it? And the answer is almost always we can. Um, almost always one theory can, in its own way, harder, in, in a hard way, or an easier way, do what the other theory can do. So what you look, what I want to, so the fact that, that consequentialism can is what I would predict. Um, of course it can, because it's, it's watching. Um, Kantian theory has to look at consequentialism if it's going to be ever, ever to have anything to say about large numbers. Because boy, does it not know how. Not on its own. I don't know what it's going to say, but it, it's going to be looking elsewhere. So the question is really going to be, it's, it's like the competing theories that I was pointing to in the legal negligence. You're going to pick certain examples. You're going to pick examples about not having to look under your car and, and you know, just having to do this. And that's going to think, yeah, we're just trying to be safe. That's the sort of thing that you want to do. And I'm going to say, well, well I actually need us to be um, not just developing certain dispositions, but actually being fully attentive in a deliberative way to the way that complex values related to the different primary duties interact. And you can't do that with the kinds of dispositions that a consequentialist typically talks about. You're going to say maybe back to me, oh, but we can make that more complicated. And I'm going to say probably you can. Um, but the reason I have is I think that you know in this area, um, that following the thread in this way generates the phenomena that have to be accounted for. It may be in the end of time, and since, any, since on my view any theory can do most anything, we'll like the way a different theory does it. Um, but I'm interested in the fact that it would have been harder to generate this. It wouldn't have been as, consequentialism wouldn't have been as sensitive um, to the kinds of cases in the array that I think one has to be, whereas I think an autonomy theory um, and a theory with the structure of duties that I was suggesting is. So not a definitive answer. And I just want to just throw something out that may or may not be of interest to you. I, 
there's this very interesting way that benevolence kind of competes with self-interest in moral theories, whatever they may be. And we have this kind of continuum of uh, emphasis, emphases on benevolence uh, in, terms, in terms of that role. So someone like Rawls or someone like Professor Nussbaum is obviously further in the direction of benevolence than someone like a Locke uh, and other libertarian thinkers. And so we on the left are constantly trying to basically ratchet up the role of benevolence in, in a moral theory. And it raises a question for me because, as you explained, benevolence is a form of the good. It's not, so, it's not just pure sacrifice. And that's, that's of course, very interesting. If those of us who are cultivating benevolence as a conception of the good continue to do that, there's, there's a potential for kind of an erosion of self-interest as a competing conception. And I'm curious to know whether or not you think that there's, there's potential there for, for some kind of long-term kind of, you know, basically displacement of self-interest entirely. This is obviously kind of an altruistic or a, or a perfectionist notion, but I, I find it very compelling, and I'm just curious to know if you have any thoughts about it. I remember when, um, a million years ago, when, well, I had a million and a half, and you only have a million. Um, <laughs> um, John Rawls started talking about own interest instead of self-interest. Really ugly yeah. phrase. I mean, it, it didn't win. Um, and, but over time, I, I, I think I have felt more acutely what he wanted. Um, which is, there's, there's a difference between the interest centered in a person. You know, I'm, I'm that actor, and, and these interests are my own. And that we have to attend to. We have to understand what kinds of interests does an agent or actor have. Um, and self-interest is a very uninteresting account of own interest in that sense. So if I were to locate the... Um, the, the view that I was just throwing out at you in a casual way, I would say that I'm actually interested in ratcheting beneficence down, um, not up. Um, I think um, beneficence is, an e you know, in some ways, a very easy virtue. There are many for whom we do good easily the more we have a conception of ourselves as involved in a cooperative enterprise, the easier it is to be beneficent. If you and I are building something together, um, in, that, in that we're doing something together, a whole set of your needs in the language that I was using today become my needs because we can't do what we're trying to do if you can't get the help you need. And I think this is an insight that was important to Rousseau. It was an insight that was important to Mill. Um, that the more we see the endeavor of morality as a cooperative endeavor as opposed to a limiting endeavor, the more these questions come up in a different way. We have a different conception of what it is to lead a good life, what it is to be connected to other people. Um, and some of what we're debating, and I think some of what I thought came up in thinking about non-negligence, is there, is, there are some robust choices that we have to make from the point of view of moral theory in thinking about what it is we're trying to explain. It really makes a difference. If we think that you know, what we are are separate individuals with loci of interests and rights, that morality and law exist in order to protect, 
except in those difficult circumstances in which we simply can't get by um, unless we negotiate across it, then we're going to have a story about um, beneficence and self-interest that's of one kind. But that's a theoretical choice about a certain conception of, of what we're like and what the value is that morality and law might be about. Um, I think if one recognizes that these aren't exactly neutral competitors with respect to one another, um, then part of what I think you have to do is rethink from the bottom what beneficence is going to look like um, in a system that thinks about property in a different way, in a system that thinks about taxation in a different way. Um, I mean, one of the things that I like about starting from the law side is that consequentialism is much better than this than other moral theories, but you know, between if you compare consequentialism with all the deontological moral theories, the law, sorry, you pair, compare the law with the deontological moral theories, the law is always asking, what's it, what's it for? What's the underlying point or purpose? What are we trying to do? Um, and those questions have been ruled out for all sorts of um, moral conceptions, except for the consequentialism. So partly it's trying to see what happens if you bring that back. Lee. So I was intrigued by your example of um, the instances where it might be improper to help. Uh, the, the example of a child falling, maybe you can be an air meddler and try to like leap out to be helpful. And um, it, it, made, it made me wonder about, it connects for me at least in thinking about kind of institution building or habitat building maybe more in, in your terms of uh, what kind of structure we can create legally to help people know when when to, when to not help and when to help. Because sometimes we have the opposite problem, kind of a bystander effect that nobody <coughs> wants to act or they expect someone else to act or they, they don't, they're not sure they understand that it's their role to act and people then don't get help that they need. And I, I guess I'm just curious your take on if there's some type of role for law or some kind of institutional, like a way that institutions can become less negligent by clarifying what people's roles are to each other or having a way that people can coordinate um, in instances where there may be a desire to help, but there may also be a duty not to help. Well, so some kinds of cases might be the worry about you know, whether we should have Samaritan laws, for example, um, and whether um, certain litigiousness in a culture um, about harm causing makes it difficult for people to be benefactors, doctors, refusals um, to attend to heart attack patients in theaters for fear that um, they'll get involved in complicated malpractice suits. Um, so one answer is, of course, the law can help with that. Um, I mean, if not, not necessarily the courts, but possibly the courts, but also the legislatures, and in either you know, capping certain sorts of um, uh, capping certain sorts of, of findings, or you know, dealing with issues of insurance. Um, there could be public insurance schemes for. I mean, if that's what the so what we want to find out is what's the impediment. Um, I don't think the impediment is a psychological one. Um, so the impediment may be you're worried about getting too embroiled or too difficult. You know, it being too difficult to 
untangle yourself. One of the problems about helping is that once you begin helping, you're kind of committed to staying and helping. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's as if you know, a doctor who, start, who stops and starts a procedure, stops to help someone and starts a procedure, can't say, well, I've kind of gotten halfway there, but I guess I'm out of here. I'm late to dinner. Um, and, and so I think there are, but, but often these are issues where what's driving people are worries about liability. So on that. On questions about when they shouldn't help, um, now that's, so what are the kinds of cases we're thinking about? Sometimes you shouldn't help because you lack expertise. Sometimes you shouldn't help because it's in somebody else's domain. Um, you have to you know, recognize appropriate authority. And on the playground, it's you know, the, the caretaker, um, not the stranger. Um, what other kinds of cases did you have in mind? I think that there may be lots of settings where, um, where people might encounter someone who, who is in need. And what we want is for the person who's in need to be helped by exactly one person, in a sense. We don't want everyone crowding to help them. We don't want everyone ignoring them. We don't want somebody jumping the queue to undertake a duty that is better left to someone else. But sometimes there can be confusion on the facts as to whose role that is. And it, it, it just seems to me that if we're going to think about individual duties of, of non-negligence and, and when people act, that there has to be some kind of understood rules of the game of, of where do we look to try to get the coordination strategy that lets us uh, stay out. If you just see someone on the street, for example, who, who's, who's falling over, you know, to what extent should you understand it as this is someone I should help, this is someone I should call the police to help? I mean... So so some things we can do. I mean, we, we could all have better training. We could all be better helpers. It could be part of our high school education that, you know, so we can make some of this go away. We're terrible helpers because we are unbelievably ignorant um, about how to do very much unless we take special training. So I think there are things like that. Um, some, things, um, some things are matters of um, who's available. I mean... Typically, if there's really bad traffic congestion, um, none of us think what we're supposed to do is jump out of our cars and start directing traffic. Um, how did we learn that? <laughs> we, um, we did learn it, that we're not supposed to do it. We're not, there isn't this enormous crush in the intersection of people desperate um, to direct traffic. Um, you know, we, we, we can't call for help because nobody's listening, um, and besides, they can't get there. Um, so some of this, it's not that strange. Um, these are things that are learnable, um, but in a situation in which I think, like, I mean, in ordinary American culture, where apart from very special places, often in churches, for example, where a great deal of attention is spent about obligations to help and what you have to do, um, we simply don't talk about it. Um, I'm not sh so I'm not sure in a certain sense why the answer isn't a simple one. Um, as with many things, like how to take care of your own health and body, which we also don't talk about very much in the education of children, strikes me as something, if it's important that we figure out how to deal with the, co the coordination problem, then what we need to do is make ourselves literate about the nature of need and health, which we're not. Um, 
So we ask for more than we need. We, we think we need more than we need. Um, lots of problems. Um, so it seems to me there's plenty of institutional work. I'm not quite sure, apart from the Samaritan issue um, and the liability issues, which that do seem to me things that the law could make better. Um, but it's a particularly apt institution. While others are thinking, I want to ask one that's connected to Sarah. So, so all the time you were talking, I was thinking, okay, this Kantian view is very appealing, but when you move into the political domain, all these issues about political liberalism will arise. And uh, since there are students from the class, and we've just been talking about the difficulty of using certain Kantian notions in a pluralistic society where what you want is a freestanding political conception that can become the object of an overlapping consensus among many different comprehensive doctrines, including utilitarianism. And you know, we were talking about how, how Rawls, up until I think the very end of his life, was struggling with how much of Kant you could put in and how much you shouldn't put in because it would become too sectarian. So I guess I thought that you could have answered Sarah's question somewhat differently by saying, well, you know, there's a part of this, what a, the moral doctrine I've defended, that could be stripped down, part of a freestanding political module, but then you consequentialists could quite happily affirm that and we could find this, this common ground. I mean, so the question, you know, maybe you don't like political liberalism and you're more of a perfectionist, so that's one, one possibility, but why didn't you go there, I guess, I want to know. I don't like political liberalism. <laughs> um, I, um, I think Rawls struggled, and I think he went the wrong way. Um, I think he, uh, but I think he went the way, this isn't a time to do Rawls uh, stuff, but I mean, I don't think he saw a way um, to properly handle um, deep pluralism. Um, I think part of the, um, so a little bit like the question we were just talking about, you know, some of it is about how, how committed one is to abstract formulations um, that we all have to embrace life, liberty, and the pursuit of whatever, um, and what morality, including the morality of the basic structure and um, the, the political module, what it actually looks like um, when these values work down. Mm -hmm. So part of the point that I had in, in even you know, uttering um, uh, dangerous words like um, strict scrutiny and so on uh, is these are all terms that are multiply interpretable um, in in, in thinking of, of them as terms of protection or terms of non-negligence, which have their source in a view of here's this thing that we're building together. We're not necessarily making us into little Kantians. But, um, I, I, I think part of the problem is where you think that the, um, where the pluralism has to have its play. Um, and it seems to me it has ample space to have its play further down in the system in the articulation of what a respectful engagement with difference looks like, um, what a non-negligent, I don't know what the answer this is, but I mean, I take it, um, how one negotiates the 
things like the French headscarf, to take an example that Brian worries about. Um, um, there ought to be ways in which, if we aren't trying always to use our highest and most abstract conceptions of the value, the one that really makes it clear that we and you are different, but instead we, we're down, so to speak, in the playground and wondering, well, who has the authority to pick up the kid? Um, there, I think we can make better sense back and forth. And it seems to me, not always, but many parents in nursery schools where there are children um, of many different cultures and ways of um, upbringing, work this out. Yeah. It, it, it's, so I'm, I'm not so sure. So I think that political liberalism caved in too fast. Well, we can go on yes. over dinner on that. I guess I think it's like any establishment that if it's benign and settles things well at the concrete level, it still could be very um, oppressive expressively. Let's say in Finland, the Lutheran church is very benign, but as a Jew, I have to get the permission of the Lutheran church to be buried in a cemetery in Finland, and I find that abhorrent. I think it just expresses disrespect. Not, not that anyone would ever say no, and they think it's fine. And so, but you know, your answer seems to me a little bit like that—that that we can use our Kantian doctrine in framing the basic principles and put the utilitarians to one side at that point. But then, of course, when it comes to settling some concrete matter, we'll do it perfectly. Well, nicely. I, mean, yeah. I agree with you about the um, oppressive expressivism, but I mean. I think my position is, is something like this. Um, I could be wrong in the following, and, and likely am, almost certainly am. Um, but I don't think it's been tried. Um, so I think that, I mean, that's really what I feel. I feel that once, once Rawls declared that we were going this way, then the project went that way. Could you use religious speech in the public forum? So what? But I, I think the, the, the project is sort of yet unresolved about the nature of the complaint that one makes um, about oppressive expression. I think it's a fair question. But um, anyway, that's a, it's a different issue. So Yeah, um, so what I'm asking might just, it was a complicated talk, so I might not have just not got all the moves right. But it sounded like when you were talking about do care uh, as a kind of duty to attend to the impediments that, that one that, that, that can arise in full fulfilling one's primary duties. It sounded like you were saying that this is somehow falls under the domain also of what Kant would call public right. Um, so even though it's an imperfect duty, it has something to say about, I mean, it, it, it in some way falls under the domain of uh, Public right. So, what I just, I guess, what I wanted to ask you is just a very basic thing. I mean, <clears throat> it seems then that your version of the Kantian state is quite a bit more, quite a bit more active, let's say, than um, a version, say, for for instance, if, if you take someone like Ripstein, uh, he thinks what public right steps in to do is to uh, prevent a case in which private actors will prevent, my action will prevent you from being able to um, exercise your capacity for choice at all. Right? But it, it seems like the way you're understanding the distinction between uh, 
public and private right actually allows for the state to do a whole lot more. And I was just, I was just um, curious if that was. Well, in, in a way, it's, it's similar to, to the conversation, the uh, abbreviated conversation with Martha. In a way, it's to be seen. Um, I think the question is much more open than Ripstein thinks. Um, and in part, I think that because I think um, about Kant, Ripstein is wrong in, in um, encapsulating the political from the ethical. Um, so there's, as I say, these are, this is a systematic account. There are upstream and downstream effects. If you have certain sorts of, a certain conception of contract or a certain story about property or a certain story about negligence, that affects, I mean, it's your question. That affects how we're going to be thinking interpersonally and ethically about the way in which we either help or don't help or feel that we can or we can't, and vice versa. Um, when you close them all, it, I mean, it, in a certain sense, it makes no sense to me. I mean, there are very good reasons why, you know, when you're doing, when you're in a legislature, you're, you're, you're operating at a level in which you can't be answering the questions about what to do on the playground. It's not your province. It's not what you're supposed to be considering. Um, and law, though I think all of these things are ultimately motive sensitive, there are very good reasons for having lots of directives that aren't. That's not the point. But that the thought that, that these are, I mean, there is the thought, and you know, many, many theorists of the law believe it's the most important insight, that these are just separate domains. Um, and the law is not a moral domain. But Kant didn't have that thought, um, at least. I mean, whatever the, the truth of the matter, Kant certainly didn't have that thought. Um, and so the picture that I have actually, I think, follows the picture that he has, which is that law comes first um, because it's law that you have to have um, in order to create an environment in which you can have people acting morally. Um, and that seems to me absolutely the way the substantive theory works. So it's not that you have, a, on this picture, a wide array of, of moral duties and what the law is supposed to do is pick and choose which ones um, are going to, be, going to be the ones that have legal enforcement or have legislative support. There's a priority to public right and the law and the basic structure. Um, because as in the case, for example, about you know, assault and battery, um, those are prior and have to be prior um, to our moral accounts of where things, otherwise, where things start and stop with our bodies. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary. So I think it's not that there's one right answer to what we're going to determine is our private space. That can be debated. But moral deliberation about how you and I interact with each other operate against a background where we know what the, what the structure is, and the structure comes from the law. Um, and the law says... This, so that part of the Ripstein part, I think, is right. You have to have that. I think what he doesn't see is that among the ways in which you tell how good the kinds of answers are to the various what's it for things is by looking at the nature of the ethical life that you make possible. And again, there are pressures going in both directions. OK, Brian, we'll have the last question. Thank you. Um, this, in a way, may follow up on some of what you were just saying. But I wanted to invite you to say a little bit more about very suggestive remark you made at the end, but in a sense the whole paper illustrated it, namely that you think of law as a proper part of the moral system. And I wanted to just ask what you meant by that, because there's certain things I suspect you didn't mean by that. You didn't mean that 
um, there can't be legal duties that are in fact unethical and that morally we ought to comply with, but I'm not sure. Uh, I assume you didn't mean that every moral duty ought to be legally codified and made a legal duty as well. So it's an invitation to say, in what sense is law a proper part of the moral system in your way of thinking about it? In, in both a simple and, I mean, the answer is both simple and, and ludicrously complicated. Uh, so um, it's a functional answer. I mean, that's why it's the same answer. There, there are certain things, so take an argument. You can't, you can't, um, not because we're evil or selfish or something, you, you, you can't run a system of property off of um, individuals' goodwill. Um, somebody has to settle boundaries. Somebody has to settle disputes. Some, there has to be some, there's some problems that require institutional answers. Um, I think that's true about assault and battery. I think it may be true about a whole bunch of things. Um, I think um, there may be reasons for thinking that um, speech freedoms need to have some prior protection um, before we even begin thinking about the ethics of truth-telling in the interpersonal realm. So I think when I started with saying, first question is always, what's it for? Um, so both morality and law give rise to directives of various sorts with various sanctions and various institutional structures. And it's fair to ask in each case, whose work is it? Why do we want to have a coercive system here? Well, in the case of public beneficence, I want to say, thousand points of light. George the first. Um, terrible idea. <laughs> it put the burden in the wrong place. Um, because what the issue was wasn't about were we good enough. The issue was were we taking care well enough. And that was a collective thing, not a multiply individual thing. So if you ask that question, then you have an argument. We have, then have to have certain institutional structures about taxation, about welfare, and so on. So to say that um, law is a proper part of morality for me is to say we're always answering the same question, what's it for? Um, and then we're answering it by looking at what kinds of institutional structures do you need to have um, to get what you need? I think, as I said, to, in answer to your question, I think the law in some ways, I know this is a peculiar thing to say for an ethicist, um, but I think the law actually comes first for a Kantian. Um, or ought to come first for a Kantian. Does it mean that the law can ask you to do things that you couldn't do as a private individual? Of course it can. Um, but it's not asking you to do them as a private individual. Um, when the law tells a policeman that he or she has these powers, he's, the law is not saying to such and such an individual, you now have these powers. Um, the law, I mean, this is, you know, baby stuff. Right? The law defines a role. The role has certain you know, um, rights and entitlements, permissions, and so on. Um, but can the law say that I privately, privately, um, am authorized to kill at will? No, can't do that. Um, because when you look at what the system is, the law can't give that directive. Now, the law may say um, that in a case of self-defense, it's not going to investigate what my mental state was if the circumstances were such that it's plain, da 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 But that's a different matter. 
Um, that's saying it's got good reason not to investigate and we can't do that sort of thing. And, um, I'm not bothered by that. So yeah, I think the, um, you know, I'm not sure who owns the system. <laughs> it, sometimes it looks like a contest when, when one says that is law a proper part of morality? It looks like, ah, well, then law is seeding terrain. But I think we're actually, it's just the same, whatever it is, it's a single, sit from the point of view that I'm arguing from, it's a single system that's trying to create a context or a space, or I like this ecological metaphor of habitat, um, and it turns out to have these functionally structural, very different parts um, that really can't in the end be understood independently of each other. Though, like, it's a bit like biology where you can you know, study a little cluster of cancer cells over here for a long time, but sooner or later you're going to have to look at the organ that the cluster cells are in, and then when you try to treat the, the defect in the cells in the organ, you're going to have to see what happens if you do this. To, I mean, it's, again, I'm, I mean it to be pretty simple. Well, I want to thank you very much and invite everyone to join Barbara Herman in the reception. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.